All right. Okay, we're gone. Roll it. Yeah, bring me champagne when I'm thirsty. Bring me a ripple when I want to get high. Here with Megan Duffy. Good morning. Right? It's morning. <laughs> yes, Technically our show it's airs not. in the morning. <laughs> All of our news a little bit out of date. Uh, but you know what? You're at home. There's not that much to talk about. <laughs> We're not actually even covering the fucking news anymore. So whatever. No, yeah. I love it how we were both in mutual agreement. We're like, well, the news is so depressing. <laughs> That even for a true crime show, we've got to do something else. So, we are on a cult kick. This week, um, the Waco Siege slash Massacre. Branch Davidians. Who actually existed before Koresh even joined them? But, anyway, let's go. (laughs) Um, Actually, you know what would be fun is maybe our (laughs) outro could be one of David Koresh's songs. Because, as everyone knows, he was a rock star for God. He was a rock star for Jesus, and it just so happens that I've already downloaded a couple of his songs from YouTube, so you read my mind. <laughs> you know, I uh, so you sent me one, and I, I listened to it, and it is better than I thought it would be. It is also definitely better than the Christian bands that my youth group would make us listen to, so there is that. You, oh, God. Um, it's hard for me to... It's hard for me to like Christian music when, like, your favorite song is, uh, you know, it's by Muddy Waters. It's called Champagne and Reefer. So, kind of hard. So, one of the reasons why we picked this is because uh, I've had a lot more time to hang out with Netflix recently. Go figure. And um, the docu-series on the Waco Siege is on Netflix. Yes, ma'am. And it has Macaulay Culkin's younger brother in it. 
Mm-hmm. So uh, I marathoned that last weekend, and then um, with Jonestown still in my mind, uh, I thought that this would be a an interesting one to cover. And this is also a bit of a hometown for me on several fronts, not only because David Kresh, who was the leader of the Branch Davidians at Mount Carmel during the siege, uh, but also two of my neighbors. Oh, so David Kresh is from Houston. I'm from Houston. That's the connection. Yeah. Uh, I wasn't sure if I – it was a long work day. Um, but also, two of my okay. neighbors growing up are uh, from Waco or from, I guess, the surrounding area and who were actually uh, in Waco while that was going on. And um, Waco is maybe like an hour and a half, two hours from Houston, from, um, well, mm-hmm. the small town where I grew up near Houston, I guess. And uh, so the Waco Siege is something that I grew up hearing about, but never fully got into because it happened when I was quite young. And unsurprisingly, people do not tell their toddlers about cults getting murdered by the FBI. (laughs) I was 22 and it was part of my world, so I was kind of fascinated by the whole thing. Yeah. West of Texas. I I drove through there once. Uh, Waco is a source of all kinds of interesting news, you know. What was the an- acronym, acronym you told me the other day? Oh, Wacky Waco? Yeah. Well, yeah, because in, in the story we're about to tell, the feds call it, We Ain't Coming Out. <laughs> Which is kind of awful. But there it is. Um, yeah, so <laughs> something that I guess people say... Um, this is like totally a thing. I just Googled it. Uh, but if someone was a little bit off their rocker, um, mm-hmm. you'd make jokes and call them wacky Waco. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and turns out it's because yeah. the Branch yeah. Dominions are in Waco, which in hindsight, I'm like, man, maybe this was like not a very appropriate saying. Well, I will tell you in my, in my humble opinion, I don't actually think the followers are wacky. David was, but I don't think the followers were. I think they were just looking for something to really believe in, in my opinion. Mm, uh, I think that they were in a cult. They were uh, in a I cult. Guess can, yeah, I think that um, I think that David Koresh was able to really kind of get get a hold on people, kind of like cast his spell. He definitely. I'm sorry, I don't want to insult any of our listeners, um, but I have some strong suspicions of any religion that is too heavily tied up in the apocalypse. I feel like that is like not a super healthy headspace to be in all the time. Like there are people out there that don't have a religion that still believe in the apocalypse, so it's fine. True enough, and they're probably wacky too. And they're probably happy that the end of days are nigh. <laughs> <sighs> My God, like, you know, all my fr- all my survivalist friends are really coming out of the woodwork right now. Moving <laughs> on. A lot of crazy things going on. Um, yeah, so the Branch Davidians. Um, so I went down, so I'm really interested in theology. Um, so I figured we could start out just by talking about, like, what are Branch Davidians and how did they come to be? Yeah, let's so, the United States is, from a theological perspective, really interesting compared to other countries because 
um, so much of um, U.S.'s religious beliefs are like new religions. You know, um, Mm -hmm. I mean, Protestantism is not very old at all. And then when you get into kind of these more evangelical sects and you have the um, like tent revivals and the Seventh-day Adventists, um, it's just... We're also involved in Jonestown's story. Yeah. I think there's a lot of cults that spin off from the Seventh-day Adventists. Do you think so? I'm going to do my research on that. Well, it makes sense. All right, so let's talk about the Seventh-day Adventists, why don't we? Okay. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. All right, so the Seventh-day Adventists um, is a sect of Protestantism uh, from the mid-1800s, and they are all about the Second Coming. Right? Like, they are really leaning into the doom and gloom, gloom, apocalypse, chosen people thing. All right. Um, Now, I think one of the reasons, going off of, like, what you just said about how a lot of cults seem to find fertile soil in the Seventh-day Adventists, the church is known for its emphasis on diet and health, and it's, like, holistic understanding of a person, um, its promotion of religious liberty, and they, more than I think a lot of religions in the United States, really emphasize lifestyle Lifestyle as being a central component to their beliefs. Now, I mean, I guess you could say that, you know, it's like, well, as a Catholic, there's certain, you're supposed to give to your church, you're supposed to help the poor, work at soup kitchens. No. This is like Seventh-day Adventists are vegetarian. You know, they, ha- they have a um, much, like, stricter code of conduct um, mm-hmm. than what you listeners are probably thinking. Fun fact, this is a good Jeopardy question, the Seventh-day Adventists actually helped create cereal as, as like, a breakfast food used how we are today. Hmm. It's no wonder I grew out of that too. Okay. No, cereal is delicious. <laughs> so, um, so basically, no. there was like a Seventh Day Adventist who was like part of the Kellogg's family, and was like, "This is very like healthy, nutritional breakfast food," and um, they really like pushed for cereal to go like mass production. So, so you're looking at your oh, bowl okay. of uh, frosted right. flakes. Okay, okay, okay. I mean, I was New York Jewish lady because I prefer a, I prefer a bagel and a champagne. Oh, that's good too. Mm-hmm. All right. So, how did the Davidians come out of this? All right. So, the the Davidians came um, around the 1920s, um, and then this is a, a familiar trend today. Um, but this man named Victor Hutef, uh, he basically got kicked out of the Seventh Day Adventist Church for demanding reform. Um, and, okay, so Victor is a little bit of a rebel rouser. He's trying to just kind of, like, change all this stuff. Um, when he gets kicked out, he, he, he wants to be, like, somewhere a little bit more rural. So he plunks down in Waco, and he starts Mount Carmel, which is kind of funny that, like, I didn't realize that it was so old even before David Crush yeah. got there. And what was that group called? Do you know? They were just the Davidians. 
Oh, I actually have something called. Oh no, that started in the fifties. Never mind. Shepherds. So they were they were considered the Davidian Seventh Day Adventist Church. Okay. Yeah, because it's like in order to get to David Crush, you have so many different branches of basically coups. Yeah, religious coups, and none of them are happy with how the leader is, so they go off and start their own. So I have a schism in the fifties that branches off called Shepherd's Rod. Ah, uh, yes. Um, and they actually establish head at Mount Carmel Center in 1955. But I'm getting ahead of us, so continue. I'm sorry. Oh, well, I think that he's one of the people who did Shepherd's Rod. Okay. He was somehow involved with that. Um, I sort of skipped over that. It was getting a little bit convoluted for me. But in general, like, you know, like, like you're starting out with Seventh-day Adventists who are, again, very much about the Second Coming, and then it's like each branch, you just get more and more extreme. Yeah. Um, so do you want to talk about uh, what's going on with the, with the Shepherd's Rod? The Shepherd's Rod. Well, they were surprisingly led by a woman named Lois Roden, right? Uh, she was a self-proclaimed prophetess and leader who, um, in her, uh, she was in her late 60s. And I don't, I couldn't find a lot about them per se. She had a son named George who thought that, you know, if his mom wasn't the next, or she was a prophetess, but he might birth the next coming of Christ. We don't like, he did a lot of um, prancing and perching in uh, because his mom was the prophetess. So he also was a very violent man. Just generally, he was just a very violent man. And so this is. Oh, yeah. So. Oh, sorry. I, no, I know the time no, between Victor Hutef. <clears throat> so uh, she was Hutef's wife. Oh. And so she kind of took over after Hutef died. Okay. So he established Mount Carmel. Uh, but um, her and her son were really the ones who kind of like bring it to George, yeah, to David. To I'm so sorry that you guys can't see my hand gestures right now. Maybe we should um, do like a video cast. Oh God, at some point, you, sometime maybe, but not today. Okay, we keep. I keep saying that, but one of these days I'll show up with eyebrows. Yeah. So, but that's why we call her the self-proclaimed prophetess because if she's married to the guy who established Mount Carmel, was she a prophetess while he was alive? Or did she just decide, uh, you know, husband's gone. Guess what? I'm in charge. It's like a um, reincarnation. Uh Okay. Right. (laughs) Yeah. Okay, so this is all happening in the 50s. There's not a lot about what happens with the Davidians, at least that I know of, unless you have some information between 55 and when uh, David shows up in the group. He's not David yet. He's still Vernon. So in 1982, 83, 82, Mm -hmm. probably David meets Lois Roden. Mm -hmm. And she brings him up to Mount Carmel. No, you have to understand. He does, but you also have to understand that David has basically memorized all of the Old Testament by the time he was 12. Mm -hmm. He's he's been grooming himself to be the next Messiah since he was 10 years old. Yeah. So let's let's not forget that. Yeah, he had a very unfortunate childhood with, which is also sort of part and parcel to a cult leader. They have 
very rough shoulder, single mom, horrible stepfather. He was mm-hmm. dyslexic. There is claims that he was, he, he said he was once raped by a group of older boys. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, he left, he dropped out of high school and left, but he has memorized the Bible since the age yeah. of 12. Well, and also, he was a member of a Seventh-day Adventist church. Yes, him and his mom. So, yeah. Like, he's not getting this out of nowhere. He didn't just read Revelations and all this just poured out of his head. No, he was born into it, but he he chomped on that bit and ran with it. And so when he met Lois, of course, she's like, oh, my God, we have to have babies. And we'll have the next chosen one. Right? Mm-hmm. So they yeah. do. They they start a secretive affair. Probably not so secret when you're living in Mark Comerall and there's only 85 people at the time. She actually is the one that came out and said, he's going to be the father of my next child. She's also like 64. So mm-hmm. I'm not sure how she's going to Unlikely. <laughs> Unlikely at 64, but let's just bang because he, he could, I don't know, not my that kind of guy, but he could be hot for he's, Mount Carmel like, kind of guy. He's a sperm. <laughs> he is a little... You know, he had that fucking early 90s mullet, and he could play electric guitar, you know? Like, maybe she was a band groupie kind of guy. You know, like, maybe that was the thing. He knows Revelations backwards and forwards, and he can play electric guitar, and he's kind of hot. <laughs> I'm just imagining why David Koresh's uh, Tinder profile would be. Oh! Oh, we need my brother back on the show to tell us what that would be. <laughs> Okay. Okay. So, so now, like, when she's declared him to be the ne- next father of her very unlikely child, um, he's also started his own teachings, which uh, caused a lot of controversy in the group because George Lois's son was supposed to be the next leader, and now he's a little jelly because because David, he could now goes by David is an like interloper. Stepdad is. Mm-hmm. Stepdad is half his age. <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, so to sort of quell this whole thing, David like went out and said that God had spoken to him and told him to marry 14-year-old Rachel Jones. So the power struggle between George and David sort of mellowed out just a little bit because George uh, realized that he wasn't, you know, gonna marry his mother and take over the group just yet still had suspicions but wasn't really afraid because david found a 14 year old instead of a 64 year old yikes cringeworthy a little bit so george my next statement says george forced him off to off the followers at gunpoint do you have anything before that no, I don't. I didn't really get into the power grab too much between George and David Koresh. I started to... Okay, let me go through it real quickly. So, David's married to Rachel Jones. George forces him off the property. David and all of his followers leave. Um, and so, for the next two years, they live rough, like, in tents and off the land, like, 90 miles away from Waco. So this mm-hmm. is the time where he starts traveling to California, Australia, Israel, UK to start recruiting members, right? Just off yeah. doing all that shit. So he's forcing them to basically rely on him. And this he's this is when he starts going out playing rock bands in bars. 
and they start going to the gun shows and things to make a little money. Um, so 1983, 1986, Lois Roden dies in 1986. Now, George's support in the group has waned and, um, he challenges because, you know, he's only 90 miles away and he hears about David. I'm going to run through this really quickly. Challenges David to a contest to raise the dead to prove his divinity. Yeah. Even going so far as to dig up a corpse himself to practice on it. Uh huh. Koresh returns to Mount Carmel with some of his followers one night, all in camouflage, all armed to the teeth, and they're making a ruckus out in George's yard. George comes out armed, and they attempt to kill George by shooting him in his yard. There's a big shootout, and they pin he's shot, and they pin George behind a tree. But prior to that, George has already called the cops, so the cops show up and arrest everybody on site, except for mm-hmm. George. So David Koresh goes through a uh, uh, attempted murder trial. He's going to mistrial. All his followers are completely acquitted. Now George is real fucking pissed. And turns out George was running a meth lab on Mount Carmel at the uh, same same time. Yeah. Yep. So he gets arrested for that. Gets thrown in jail. David, because the property is now up for sale, uh, in a in a sheriff's auction buys Mount Carmel in 1988. Oh no, I'm sorry. George was in jail for murdering Dale Ader with an axe. That's yeah. right. Yeah, and the meth lab. So yeah, um, so that's um his roommate. Yeah. Okay, so all this. Yeah. Yeah. So 1988, David buys Mount Carmel, and that's where we begin. <laughs> it's just so crazy. So I'm like on the Wikipedia page for George Roden, and I just looked at the um, Ader murder, and apparently um, Roden thought that Koresh sent Aiden to kill him, which I mean maybe he did Ader to kill him. So George Roden was put. He's, he's probably smoking his own stash from the meth lab. Come on. George Roden was put on trial for murder. He was found not guilty by reason of insanity, which, as you know, because you listen to this podcast, almost never happens. Mm-hmm. And he was sent to a mental state hospital in North Texas. Hope Whoa. he's still there, quite frankly. Okay. 1988. That's where we... That's where the, our, the idea of Mount Carmel begins. Right? Mm-hmm. Okay, so, again, to earn extra money, they're working at gun shows, and Koresh is playing his... Okay, in the show, it wasn't Christian rock. He was playing My Sharona, not a Christian rock song, but I dug it, because they weren't going to be able to play Christian rock and get people to still watch the show. Fair point. (laughs) He could have been playing covers, too. Maybe. But My Sharona is all about, I want to bang you, I want to bang you. Please come and bang me. That's very unchristian. That is pretty unchristian. Right. Unless, of course, David Crush is speaking about himself. Or the, well, it is a bar, so there's probably no 14-year-olds in the audience. Uh, that is where he, that is also where he meets David Thibodeau as a drummer. Right? Mm-hmm. So, yeah, they're, and, and also they're buying, like, weapons and ready-to-eat military-style meals and gas masks and military gear from all the gun shows that they're working at to support their lifestyle. Yeah, so just for one second, David Koresh, his 
his theology, um, as it differs from the Seventh-day Adventist, is that he took revelations, like, one step further. He says um, that, like, there's going to be, like, this prophet, which he believed to be himself, who is going to, what was it, like, break open the seven seals. Yes, the and seven so seals. The, the seven yes. seals are, yeah, like, these, like, signs of the apocalypse, and it's mm-hmm. to... Um, bring in the coming of God and the, uh, like, revelations, basically. Uh, that's true. Uh, so if anybody doesn't know what the seven seals are, also in the 90s, I think it was the early 90s, Demi Moore was in a movie while she was hugely pregnant called The Seventh Seal. So if you need to know what the apocalypse looks like, look, watch that movie. It was very, I think the 90s were all about the end of days. It's, it's, I don't remember it very much. Uh, yeah, yeah, it was a very crazy time for me, uh, personally, so I don't remember a lot of that. But there it is. Um, but then also, you know, like, part of the Seven Seals is that there's going to be some sort of, like, external turmoil um, or even, like, siege. It's, like, what happened in Waco is almost line-by-line playing into what David Koresh was teaching. That's You know, exactly like, with the gunfire and just everything. That's why none of them left the house when the shit was going on. Yeah. They they actually looked at each other and was like, David was right. Yeah. So, yeah. Okay. So, David Koresh is like, he, but this is like what he's teaching. And so, of course, they're working at gun shows and they're stockpiling these supplies because they really believe that they are, that um, they're going to have this big confrontation you know, and um, that this is going to be, like, these, like, horrible military rations are going to help them protect themselves for, for God's will, you know? Mm-hmm. Also, in the meantime, David has decided that uh, he needed to father enough children to sit on the 24 heavenly thrones described in the book of Revelations. So he declared himself a polygamist, and uh, married couples who have joined the cult could no longer have sex with each other. Mm-hmm. And most of the females that he married were 14. Yeah. Yeah. Well, in the state of Texas at the time, the 14-year-olds could marry if they had their parents' permission, which maybe that's changed by now. I don't know. Probably not. However, however, um, and I didn't dig into this because I just didn't have the stomach to do it. There had been a lot of reports that David was sleeping with girls much younger than that, uh, as young as the age of 10. FBI yeah. used that as a tool to create it. I didn't go into it. If you want to know more, look it up yourselves. Because that's not what I want to deal with. Yeah, I saw that <laughs> as young as 12. Yeah. Okay. So, all of that's happening. Let's bring ourselves into 1992. The ATF becomes concerned over reports of automatic gunfire coming from the compound. So, with this sort of flimsy information and speculation that the Davidians had broken laws, the ATF obtained a search warrant and arrest warrant for Koresh and specific followers on basic weapons charges in fucking Texas. Okay? Come on. Altering a semiotic weapon to an automatic weapon, in my mind, in Texas, is basic weapons charges. But they started this operation 
called Operation Trojan Horse, which is really mm -hmm. fucked up. And they had been training at Fort Hood to take the entire building by force mm -hmm. to serve these subpoenas, which that fucking stinks to, to high heaven, if I'm mm -hmm. saying anything. So 76 agents of the ATF mounted a raid in cattle trailers on the morning of February 28th, 1993. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> there is one thing that I wanted to mention, though, before we get to the, the raid. Go ahead. Um, so very shortly before this raid, um, the Waco Tribune Herald um, released a... I believe it was like a six-part um, investigation on the Branch Davidians and specifically uh, David Koresh, and it's called The Sinful Messiah. Mm -hmm. So the, the Waco Tribune Herald, their reporter, had uh, gathered testimony from um, different members of the Branch Davidians, different former members, and um, those former members Prior to ninety three, they were they. It was like it was like the week of the raid. So they left before the raid. Yes. Okay. So they interviewed about twenty members, and um, these people accused uh, the Branch Davidians and I mean, really, let's face it, David Koresh, of um, abusing children physically and psychologically. Um, they say that Koresh had boasted of having sex with underage girls in the cult and that he claimed divine right to take um, every man's wife, had at least 15 wives. So in terms of, like, the outside world seeing the Branch Davidians as a cult, so much of that is coming from this um, Tribune-Herald investigation. Right. And actually, um, I was reading online that there is, like, this weird tension between the reporters and the FBI because the FBI were worried that it would um, tip David Koresh off when this investigation kind of is brought to light. Now, turns out the FBI and I guess the ATF did not need help doing that because the ATF had put like an agent in the Branch Davidians and it was like very transparent and poorly done. Well, there's that, but also a reporter who got tipped off by the ATF to come and video the raid stopped well, he didn't get stopped. He stopped a post oh, office. Po he stopped a post office driver because he was lost and asked directions to the Mount Carmel compound. And the post office driver, and this is in the show, and I looked it up, and it's fucking true. The post office driver's like, "Why? What's happening out there?" Guys, like, don't know yet. And three huge trucks with huge trailers full of armed men in ATF gear go driving by as we're having this conversation. Turns out the post office is a Davidian. The post office guy is a Davidian. So he runs back. He was like, really, he was like David Koresh's like brother-in-law or something. Yes, exactly. So between the ATF guy who's living across the street trying to spy on all of them and his brother-in-law who's the post office guy, they were going to find out sooner or later. Yeah, like the FBI did not need or the, I guess the ATF. The ATF did not need any help. So it's like it was like funny to read that they were all worried about this um, this report 
coming they out. Were worried, they were worried about the undercover guy across the street giving them up. And it turns out that the reporter that they called is the one that gave them up because they didn't think that anybody else out in the real world would actually belong to the tribe. Yeah. But then also, like, and you see this in the show, that the Branch Davidians were part of the community. They weren't just sitting there on the compound all the time. Like, you have Fresh and his band, like, playing around. Also, Waco is really small, and I'm sorry, it's very boring. It's very boring. It's very small. But they all needed to have jobs to to buy regular food. They didn't live off these military meals. They Mm -hmm. needed, you know, there's a lot of babies. They needed milk, and they needed real nourishment, and they needed water, and they needed all these things. Granted, they didn't have running water inside, which, you know, yay. That makes it even more fun. But they had, all of them had, like, all the men had real jobs. Yeah. They weren't just, like, hanging out, doing nothing. They gave all their money to the cult. Mm-hmm. But, yeah. But, yeah, like, the ATF really underestimated the role that the Branch Davidians had in the community. 100%. They underestimated the Branch Davidians period they were like okay the arrogance of these motherfuckers and it just yeah I, I, I was so mad at the end of that show i had to smoke a one and watch the sandlot oh my god did you <laughs> really watch over. the sandlot i watched the sandlot i needed just something real basic <laughs> yeah okay sunday morning so, february 28th 1993 the porter tips them off uh, Koresh goes and confronts the undercover agent living across the street, played by John Leguizamo. So that agent, while the ATF is setting up their camp, basically goes in and says, they know we're coming. Like, we shouldn't be doing this. They know we're coming. And everybody's like, fuck that shit. We're doing it. So essentially, the all 76 agents are lined up and mounted they brought in, I think this is, bef- did they bring the tanks in at this time? Or was it just the helicopters? I don't remember. Everybody was just, and this is just to serve warrants. Let's just remind everybody. To serve warrants. Why did they, they were worried that this was going to be some sort of shootout from the get-go. It does seem kind of puzzling to me now that they wouldn't just try to serve the warrant without, like, usually when you serve a warrant, you knock on the door. Well, also, keep in mind, this is right off of Ruby Ridge. This this is, like, less than five months off of Ruby Ridge. So the ATF has no shame in their game at this point, even though that thing went horribly awry. So whatever it is, if it's Hueys and tanks or whatever, they all approach the building and they're screaming. And David is standing there with the door open. And they're like, please, search warrant, lay down, lay down, lay down. And the guns are pointing right at him. And... The ATF, of course, claims that the Davidians are shooting at them right after David's like, go fuck yourself and slams the front door. Davidians claim that the ATF fired first, which I'm kind of more inclined to believe considering what happened at Ruby Ridge. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So the crime scenes, of course, would have yielded all of these answers, you know. 51 days later, it was all destroyed by a fire. So we don't know whoever shot fi- shot the first rounds. We don't. Uh, but I have my leanings. So I'm going to do that. The shootout lasted for 
almost three hours. So, but when it's the minutes it starts, uh, the the Davidians are inside calling nine one one, screaming, "We they're shooting at us! The ATF is outside! The feds are outside! We need a ceasefire!" The local sheriff tried to contact the ATF agents, but they had turned off their radios. Yeah, they didn't have a phone with them. And I thought that this was very telling. I'm not sure if it's fictionalized, but um, in the show, the news reporter is there with his cameras. And the only person the sheriff is able to reach is this reporter. And yeah. then the reporter has to run out screaming to the ETF guys during a shootout and it's tell close. them to please stop. It's close to true. I'm going to take it as true because also that reporter stuck the videotape that he had in his pants because he knew the ATF would make that tape disappear. Oh. Yeah. He, I read a thing that he said that he actually said that. So I'm going to go with that. So ATF eventually backs off. And of course, this is the thing that inadvertently fulfills David's prophecies of a pitched battle between good, the cult, and evil, right? Ultimately, four federal agents are dead and six Davidians are dead. And Koresh is shot in the lower abdomen from all of this. So... The morning of March 1st, the FBI comes in and takes total control of the raid. Um, and their main focus at this time was getting all of the kids out of the, of the compound. Because there's a lot mm-hmm. of kids. A lot there's of There's what, children. like 30 kids? I think there's more than that. Because <laughs> more, more than that, like, there 23 died at the end of it. And, yeah, and they were able to release 19 yeah. total. So, maybe like 50 um, children. Yeah. And the, so with the FBI, they bring their hostage rescue team, which is the HR, when you watch the show, which was the HRT banners that that fucking jack off was wearing that arrogant piece of shit that wanted to blow the place to kingdom come. Um, that's just the show, not real life. I know I have to maintain it. <laughs> but so, they bring in, you know, like they bring in a crisis negotiator and whoever. They bring in the, they also bring the tanks if they hadn't brought them in already. I don't remember. They locked down all communication to the outside world except for two lines directly to the negotiators, to the compound, right? So the tactical commander decided that, early on, decided that the negotiators didn't need to know what the ATF was doing, which ultimately caused all of this shit. I don't know why they would think that. Because... It's, this is the same fucking bullshit we see all the time with one agency not wanting to deal with the other agency, right? ATF doesn't want to deal with FBI. FBI wants to save these, like, that, like, they literally wanted to get everybody out of there alive. ATF didn't care. They took it on as, like, these guys are just, like, back from war. Mm-hmm. Okay, come on. Um, and this division actually breaks down the negotiations with the Davidians, ultimately, because... The negotiator is telling them, yes, you can have the milk. Yes, you can do this. Yes, you can do that. And then the ATF, every time somebody comes out, they're they're throwing a flash bomb at somebody or they're driving over cars or they're, you know. Yeah. yeah. So in reference to the milk thing that you mentioned, at one point, one of the key, like, proof of trust during the negotiation was they did a swap where you release some kids and we'll give you like milk and food for the other children that are still inside. And, um, 
According to the Justice Department, they did that five times over okay. the 50, over the 51 days. Yeah. And so it's like a way to get people to slowly start releasing some of these kids. Because, again, it's like you're separating kids from parents, so no one really wants it to be going on, whatever. But um, at least in the show, and I'm presuming in real life, too, it's like as soon as the negotiator would promise something, um, the literal guns would go and, like, take it away or interfere, you know. And so there was, it was, like, impossible for trust to be built up between the Branch Davidians and um, the FBI and the ATF, as you were saying. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because there was no trust between the two agencies. Why, like, if you want to, if you want that third group to trust you, you have to emulate trust between the two of you, or you, it's not going to happen, mm-hmm. right? So lots of things happened. There's a lot of standoff. I read a lot of transcripts from the, the DOJ actually has a lot of this available online. I don't know how true it is, but I read it. There's a lot of, uh, and there's a lot of negotiating back and forth where either the Davidians fail to produce or the feds fail to produce. And so there's failure to communicate, but failure to just, David needs his message out in the world and the feds want everybody, like the FBI wants everybody to live and the ATF doesn't give two fucks about it. They're like, yeah, it's like too much conflicting interest. And then also like everyone is trying so closely controlled to control their image. You know, you have like the FBI, FBI and the crisis negotiators who are trying to, you know, put up this very like unified front to crush so that crush will do what they're asking. Crush is worried about how he's being portrayed in the media. Right. But the, but the feds lied about a lot of shit. It's now known. It's out there. And it's out there. The feds lied about them shooting at the Davidians, shooting at them. The feds lied about a lot of fucking shit to the press and to the public because they needed to the public and the media to be behind them to go in and finish this raid. That's that's absolutely 100 percent true. And if you don't believe it. I will send you all the reports. Texas Monthly did a really fucking great job at reporting it. Mm-hmm. And it's it's actually in the feds. They conned Janet Reno, the newly appointed attorney general of the United States, into letting them do this raid. They conned her in there. Hey, Flo. This is my baby Flo. Last child comes out of the compound on March 5th. Last adult leaves on March 23rd. Yeah. Right? So all told, negotiators got 33 people out, including 21 kids. Before the shit hits the fan. And boy does it. Okay. A day or two before the shit really hits the fan, the tactical team is, that's when they start running the cars over with the tanks and playing that disruptive music, the sleep disruptions with bright lights, loud noises. The noises are like babies crying and screaming rabbits being killed. And Nancy Sinatra. Like, how the fuck are you going to play Nancy Sinatra? But it's all, like, mashed together. It's, like, supposed to just be really dissonant and disturbing. It is. It's dissonant and disturbing. But what, you don't dare fucking use Nancy Sinatra. She's a fucking national treasure. Anyway. Also, I want to tell you that the Fed sent in multiple kits, suture kits, videotapes of themselves and their families, typewriters, papers, ribbons, batteries, and milk. Granted, they bugged everything, but and, they, and the Davidians actually figured it out. But those... Uh, for the FBI, that I feel like that's some good faith effort into like 
here are some good faith efforts. Like, here's the typewriter you wanted to put out your statements to the world or whatever the fuck it is. So uh, I think that's a really good demonstration on what the FBI was trying to do versus what the ATF was trying to do. Mm-hmm. And the one beautiful thing that the feds learned about with the bugs is that there was zero hysteria. Everybody was like calm and like loving towards each other. And the negotiators understood that there was no panic inside. So this was going to take a lot more fucking time and effort to get these people out. So why not give David the week to write his thing on the mm-hmm. seven seals or whatever that is. And yeah, the ATF so- was just over it. Yeah, so one of the key sticking points in negotiation was David Crush said that he needs to write, um, he needs to like write his scripture on the seven seals, and then once he does, it'll be okay for more people to be released. And that, like in his mind, was like the theological reason why he needed to stay, and like the message that he needed to be put out before anything else could happen. ATF was like not. Yeah, and but the thing is, they gave him the week, but like five o'clock in the morning on the seventh day they were like time to time's up i'm like but that's only six days technically you think about it yeah <laughs> and then also i'm not entirely sure david crush would have been able to do it in seven days but maybe in two weeks right I mean, like it was yeah. still like moving in a good direction i mean but he was sending out pages like he like they the feds made a big stink about it and they just started sending out pages like this is because his friend Steve in the show, and that's actually a real thing too, is they started sending out pages like, he's making progress, this is actually happening, when it's over, we will all come out. Mm-hmm. We will all come out. But that wasn't good enough. So uh, Janet Reno approved the raid on April 17th, after two members of the ATF went flew to New uh, Washington, D.C., and basically lied to her and said that they were going to use all kinds of safe methods to get these people out and uh, also waving the flag of alleged child abuse in her face without yeah. bringing, bringing proof. Well, and they're worried that it was going to turn into a suicide cult, which it like did not. No, it would never. Cause they were always saying like, we, we're not into suicide. Like that's not the thing. That's not what this is about. So I think she was trying to protect the kids as much as she could. Just did not work out that way. Well, how can you protect anybody when you've been lied to? Just saying. Yeah. So, Two days later, on the morning of April 19th, the FBI made an announcement over a loudspeaker to the compound that they were going to start gassing the building. The feds then say, claim that the Davidians start firing on the tanks, but uh, it, this is a heated, heatedly contested by all the survivors that that never happened. And quite frankly, why would you be shooting your bullshit automatic rifles at tanks? Because you know it's not going to do anything. Yeah. Right. Here's a quote I found from FBI agent James McGee, special agent assigned to the HRT. I was in one of the helicopters, and I knew they were shooting fully automatic weapons. I was lobbing CD gas rounds back at them. Anytime I heard or saw a report from a window, that's where I aimed. I fired 96 rounds of CD gas back at them. Now, keep in mind... That my weapon is capable of firing 40 millimeter rounds of liquid CS gas that will penetrate a sheet of plywood from 100 meters. So if it hits somebody. Yeah. And then also, I mean, I don't understand how tear gas works, but I'd imagine that. Okay. If you get enough look, of it, you're just going to suffocate. I looked this up. 
So they didn't just use tear gas. It's this. It's the CS gas, and it's fired out of a heated con- metal container. So the chances of it, if you're shooting it into an inside area of a building, mm-hmm. the heat and the gas, the the container itself can light anything on fire. Like it's combustible with wood or fabric or whatever, right? So mm-hmm. the heat, the container itself starts a fire and the gas itself is incendiary. So it's going to start a fire if you use it with inside the confines of a building. It's going yeah. to. And it, this is like documented, like this has happened before when the gas has been used in confined spaces. Many, 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 many times. So, of course, after no one fucking came out of the building, they decided to, quote, penetrate further. So they needed to make sure that tear gas was inserted all the way and to open up all, they quit, open up all exits. I'm like, yeah, well, that didn't happen. The feds were banking on the fact that the mothers would crawl through the fire to get their children to safety, and wow, did they underestimate this group. Well, it wasn't even that so much as, um, at least the way that it's portrayed in the show, that even if they had wanted to leave, um, the position that the women and the children were in, they were in like this inside room to protect themselves from the gas, because gas... um, like gas masks don't really fit on kids, so you're trying to like contain it. But also, like, why would these people come out? They don't trust you anyway. Like, they don't trust yeah. you. So they come out. You know, even if they came out with no warning prior to this incident, they got flashbang yeah, grenades thrown at them. You know, or there's also like 18 snipers sitting around the compound. Mm-hmm. So you repeatedly lie to them. You repeatedly nigged on deals. And you've threatened them with flashbang grenades every time they come out unannounced. Why would they come out? Yeah, now they're sleep deprived and oxygen starved. Like, this is not and, like and a starving. rational human and, reaction situation. No. So, I mean, they're shooting an, an inordinate amount of gas through the tanks. But they also threw in 96 rounds, as that guy said, of... CS grenades. And with that, a fire breaks out on the second floor around noon, which is about four hours, three hours after this whole thing started. Now, this building is made out of plywood, essentially, right? It's old. Old. They've got kerosene lamps because the feds keep cutting off their electricity. They've got bales of hay blocking the entrances. This place is a fucking tinderbox. And the tanks keep shoving their shit in farther, walls are collapsing. You know, like, mm-hmm. don't fucking tell me that you're not responsible for any of this. The building burned up in about three hours. Yeah. And uh, it killed 76 Branch Davidians. It did. I have a quote it's from that. All these kids that were in there. 23 children, I think. I have a quote from the ME. Yeah. Nizam Pirwani from Tarrant County. It has since come out that pyrotechnic gear was used. Essentially, they launched a tear gas canister from afar with a heat source. It results in an explosion releasing a cloud of gas particles mixed with smoke because the medical canister gets so hot, it starts a fire. So the FBI started these 
fires without a plan to put them out. Yeah. We found women and children huddled together under blankets, covered in debris, and spent ammunition. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Now, there is some evidence um, that people towards the end did shoot themselves, but <laughs> I don't think it was a suicide cult so much as they, like, knew that they were going to die. I don't you know. I, like, I, they were... Yeah, I 100% agree with you. I think that I think that they were sitting in the middle of the fire and they weren't going to give up. They were going to stay with David because this is again, this is proof of the end of days to them, right? No, I'm not even saying that much. I'm saying that like I, I was reading um it was like a Texas Monthly article for the 10 year anniversary, I think. And they were saying that it wasn't even just, like, David Koresh who did, it looks like David Koresh did shoot himself um, or had someone shoot him. Um, But even, like, some of the women, but it was because, they made it sound like it's because they were trapped. No, yeah, that's what I'm saying. They were trapped in a fire and didn't want to die burning alive. Yeah. They refused to leave because they believed in David's prophecies and David but they also didn't want to be burnt alive. Mm-hmm. So they didn't leave. So they shot themselves. And the children yeah. didn't have any chance because they didn't have gas masks. Mm-hmm. It's very complicated. Like, I do think that some of them would have left if they'd had the opportunity to. Like, with the gas and everything. Like, if the well, exit hadn't been blocked. Maybe. Maybe. But I don't think that they should have gassed them that hard in the first place with incendiary devices. Well, no. And then lie about it. Because you know you fucked up if you lie about it. Yeah, there's so many layers of mismanagement. To Janet Reno, the federal government, and to the public. Uh, Side note, apparently Timothy McVeigh was in the audience during the 51-day siege. Uh, he was there distributing pro-gun rights literature and bumper stickers bearing slogans such as, when guns are outlawed, I will become an outlaw. Well, he became an outlaw anyway. Two years later on the anniversary of the siege, he blew up the Alfred P. Mura Federal Building in Oklahoma City. Mm-hmm. My thought is, do you really... Do people really not understand why there are certain groups of people out there that don't trust the federal government to the extreme. Yeah. You know, it's just, uh, it's so complicated. Like, I don't know. It's hard because. Uh, I'm just saying, don't, why, don't be so flippant. Your federal government is chronically lying to you on a, on a general, as a general rule for a number of reasons. Sometimes it's national security. Sometimes it's this. This is unacceptable. This is because they overstepped their boundaries. They fucked up. Is a and still to this day, the FBI and the ATF won't attribute blame to themselves. To this yeah. day, even though I guess the, yeah. the Justice Department said they did. Um, I guess for me, it's just hard because um, we have so many lies coming out from this administration right now about like COVID-19, for example, Mm -hmm. we have so many people who think it's fake. It's like, this is what happens when you don't hold people accountable is, is that when you're in a situation where people are telling the truth or 
you know, when you have like a scientist and a doctor standing in front of the White House saying that this is like serious and you need to stay inside, people don't believe you. People don't believe you because I don't know, maybe when they were like 15, they they heard about Waco. Maybe when they were 15, they were looking for something bigger in their lives and they joined up with uh, David Koresh for a year and a half. But I mean, like this whole idea of like trust in our government is I think it's just like a tricky question because we see over and over again that our government is just like horrible to people. Our police force is like kind of killing black people with impunity. Don't you know, even I mean, get me fucking started on last week. Like I wanted, yeah. we should, can we talk about that next week? Cause I'm really yeah. fucking angry yeah, about that. Um, but then it's like, but it's like hard too though, because there are situations where we do need to trust in our government or trust in like at least some national leaders, um, like wearing masks. Well, you know, I I certainly trust a, a number of our national leaders, but when you when whoever made the fucking decision to send the ATF to a minor gun violation mm-hmm. in Texas, the sheriff should have gone over there and handled it himself. Yeah, there was no reason the ATF even needed to be there. Cults aren't their thing. Child sex rings aren't their thing. Why the fuck was the ATF there in the first place? That's my beef. Why wasn't the FBI? No, I agree. Why wasn't the FBI in there in the first place? If that was the thing, if there was like, fine, they're sawing off guns to change them from semi-automatic to automatic. That's a Texas thing. That's not a federal thing. What the fuck? Yeah. Arrogant pricks. Slow your roll. And they lied to everybody on the way because. They need to fix themselves off this bullshit Ruby Ridge thing. And boy, did you. Yeah. I'm done ranting now. I'm sorry. No, it's okay. I just wanted to make sure to add in that we should definitely trust Dr. Fauci. Please, uh, not the FBI. One, 100%. <laughs> I've just been like, this has been like a rough week for people trusting conspiracy theorists. Um, don't watch that YouTube documentary. It's terrible. It's all lies um so i just wanted to like add in that footnote in case anyone ever thinks they can use our show as an excuse to not stay home no no stay the fuck home listen to dr fauci the white house is now the latest hot cluster just so we're clear but also you have our full blessing to not trust trust the fbi that's fine that's fine that's absolutely (laughs) fine you can you don't have to trust the atf or the fbi or anybody else. That's fine. But you gotta trust Dr. Fauci. And and maybe the Obamans. Maybe. <laughs> All right. Well, we've got to wrap up. <laughs> Thank you for joining us um, on Crime Talk BK. Uh, we'll talk to you um, next week. Um, well, stay safe. Stay sane. Shut up. Love you, too. Bye.